Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. It's good to be back in front of the camera and behind the mic, getting to chat larger industry trends, technologies, timely news topics, and more concerning the larger broadband and telecommunications industries. Uh, Before we jump into today's episode, I want to make sure you're all caught up on previous episodes of the podcast, as well as have access to other content from our teams. So make sure that you're heading to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, that's amphenolbroadband.com for, again, more episodes of the show, but also for more pieces of content, more resources, and obviously more information about our solutions and services. You can also subscribe to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So just hit that subscribe button. You'll have a full catalog of previous conversations as well as a little bell and notification when we drop new episodes of the show. All right, team, let's jump in. We have a lot to discuss today. Very timely uh, coming off of the heels of uh, our last discussion, which was a round table on kind of a, a end of 2023 pulse check on the state of bead funding, the larger bead timeline and challenges that still await the uh, you know multidisciplinary community and cross industry and sort of cross professional community that's now going to be tasked with deploying these funds and actually realizing the goal of revitalizing rural broadband infrastructure. So again, today's episode is following in the footsteps of that conversation and honing in specifically on rural communities and the challenges that they face and are going to have to take on to help realize this goal, again, of expanding broadband infrastructure. So we're going to be venturing into the complex and dynamic world of broadband expansion in rural communities and charting a path of connectivity and prosperity. So this discussion is, again, particularly timely because um, as of the recording date today, uh, all 56 states and territories of the U.S., have recently submitted their proposals for bead funding, which means that there are now actionable plans across the entire United States for deploying these funds and you know making good on this promise of bringing broadband to rural communities and underserved communities across the U.S. So we confront a landscape where there are challenges abound, uh, but there's also opportunities for growth and innovation. And we're really going to try to ride this fine line of painting an optimistic picture, but also being real about the challenges that await rural communities, but also rural telcos, right? Rural communities often overshadowed by the larger industry 4.0, kind of digital revolution that we're facing today, stand at a crossroads today with taking on these funds and deploying them. Rural broadband expansion isn't just about laying down fiber or erecting new cell towers. It's really about understanding and addressing the unique needs of each community and making the literal infrastructure reflect those needs and serve those needs. And rural areas face a myriad of hurdles, right? Everything from geographical constraints to lack of resources, lack of manpower and expertise in deploying um, this infrastructure and making good on these promises. Uh, And again, that journey towards connectivity is therefore not a one-size-fits-all solution. So everything we're going to discuss today is not immediately applicable to every rural community, but that's kind of the whole point, right? We're going to offer some strategies for hopefully understanding how to process and make sense of those nuances for your 
rural community and rural telco uh, infrastructure deployment needs. Um, so again, this demands a nuanced approach to cover the diverse landscape of America's countryside. And bead funding is going to be a key part of this discussion. It's obviously a key part of the entire scenario of deploying um, fresh infrastructure. But really what we're hoping to highlight with our conversation today is that there's a major burden now placed on the hands and the backs of rural telcos. Obviously, rural telcos aren't the only ones with an onus now to deploy these funds and you know make these uh, promises for renewed broadband infrastructure a reality, but they are going to have to play a major part. And therefore, they have to gear up for this monumental task. So what does that task ahead really look like? What are some of the challenges and opportunities and what are some of the paths toward connectivity? Well, let's go ahead and jump in and get some perspectives today from someone who's been working on the ground with telecom and other major infrastructure uh, development and deployment projects, Mr. Brant Carter. He's Director of Industry Partnerships at Site Tracker. Brant, great to have you on. How you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah, Brant, it, it's a real pro, uh, pleasure, excuse me, getting to pick your brain on this. And I want to offer a little context here before I get context on your experience specifically for our audience. Who is Site Tracker? Well, Site Tracker powers the successful deployment of critical infrastructure. They work with market leaders in the telecommunications, utilities, smart cities, and energy industries. They work with partners such as Verizon, Nokia, Fortis, Alphabet, British Telecom, Vodafone, you name it, you name it. And they manage millions of sites and projects representing over 23 billion US dollars of portfolio holdings globally. So if there's anyone who understands the weight and some of the nuances of these critical infrastructure deployments, it's going to be our man, Mr. Brandt here. So Brandt, why don't you give our audience a little extra perspective too on the lens that you're specifically bringing to the conversation today? What are some of the touch points you've had across your career with uh, telecommunication infrastructure development and projects and the nuances of that ecosystem, working with public, private partners, et cetera. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity to speak today. Um, we at SiteTracker are right in the middle of, uh, of all this broadband infrastructure that's being deployed. Our customers are actively in the process of uh, doing the hard work of getting the cable laid, getting the connect, uh, subscribers activated, and ultimately connecting uh, with the goal of connecting everyone in the US to a, to a fully broadband uh, connection. <clears throat> so we, um, I think something like 25% of all the global fiber deployments are, are run through our site tracker platform. So we have uh, definitely a finger on the pulse of what's going on in the marketplace. And I can say without uh, really any hesitation that 2023 was a massive year for fiber investments, but I think 2024 is gonna be even bigger. You talked about the, the bead funding and certainly the money has been uh, flowing down to the states, but ultimately the states aren't the ones that are gonna spend the money, they're just gonna distribute it. So the actual capital is not gonna hit the market or hasn't really hit the market yet. Um, it will hit the market in the, in the coming months and coming quarters. But I can tell you that a lot of our customers uh, that we speak to are certainly preparing for this wave of funding that's going to hit the marketplace, getting their um, getting their businesses aligned, getting making sure all their processes and their crews are ready to uh, to deploy when uh, when things really ramp up. So things are already running very very hot, but things are going to get much much hotter in the coming months and uh, and probably for uh, for a few years yet. Yeah, and that's really I think the underlying pressure that informs um, the last conversation we had on the podcast, the one we're having today, right, 
is this this kind of looming sensation. I mean, you know, the the entire idea of deploying and the the vision of deploying renewed broadband infrastructure to rural communities has been met with a lot of optimism and excitement. But now that the day is approaching, we're starting to see some beads of sweat. And I guess, you know, pun intended there, right? Beads of sweat. Um, is, you know, the, the yeah, nice, right? But the, uh, the, the challenge that awaits all of the various nodes that now have a responsibility to deploy this infrastructure uh, you know, that weight is starting to feel rather heavy. You know, there's weight around, um, again, maneuvering geography and topography, um, weight around actually getting the right gear, like hardware and raw materials to make this happen, having the supply chain uh, support that, having the necessary manpower to install and uh, properly and skillfully install said infrastructure. All of this is sort of floating in the air and has yet to be fully addressed um, and it, it, kind of the nature of the challenge is that it is rather decentralized. It's hard to just have one sort of action guy say, okay, time to deploy 200,000 workers to make this happen. It's not really quite that simple. So I want to actually start by picking your brain on an article that I think captures this nuanced challenge rather well. Uh, it's one I read recently. You've also read it yourself. Um, it's called, quote, for rural communities, broadband expansion is no single thing. This was published on governing.com. It was written in late September by Alana Newman of the Daily Yonder. Again, this article, you know, it's just kind of one touch point, but I think, and I recommend our audience give it a quick read. Um, it really localizes the issue um, to, for example, Colorado. And it highlights that broadband expansion, again, is not a uniform process across rural communities. And even within states themselves, each rural community in a state is faced with such different uh, socioeconomic conditions, geographic conditions, et cetera. So uh, I'd love to just open the floor here for a little um, kind of off-the-cuff discussion on this article. I know you've read it. Um, why do you think it, it does such a good job of highlighting the nuances of this challenge that's being based by rural telcos and rural communities. What stood out to you in that piece? Yeah, so I know the the article well. It's uh, based on a mini sort of case study in Silverton here in Colorado. And I'm from Colorado and I've been uh, been down there. I'm an avid skier and it's a nice mountain town, um, very remote, but that's part of the the charm of the town is that it is remote. It uh, it has some of the best snow and, and tracks a lot of um, a lot of tourists that are, are looking for that kind of uh, remote um, skiing experience. But the the challenges that they have are are really sort of highlight at a sort of severe degree what many other rural communities are likely to face. So the first is that the expectation around the um, the consumer and the businesses that require broadband access. So if you're going to go down to Silverton for a ski holiday, you're not going to necessarily want to disconnect from the world, right? So your expectation is that the, the hotel that you're staying at or the, the businesses that you're attend uh, are going to be um, meeting with, that they're also going to have broadband access so that you can get some of your work done or um, at least stay with a, a connection back to the um, back to the rest of the world. So even though it's a remote area and you are going there to get somewhat disconnected, the expectation is that you still have that connectivity when you need mm -hmm. it. The remote aspect of Silverton cannot really be underestimated. It is way up in the mountains um, and really quite a distance from um, other sort of major metropolitan areas. And I think today in the article they mentioned it's serviced by a fixed broadband, uh, a fixed wireless connection, um, which 
if you've ever been there, makes a lot of sense, given that it is quite a ways away from uh, sort of a, a main central office and, uh, and going to have some real challenges in getting a broadband connection up there. That said, it's probably not a scalable solution. In fact, they recognize that and they're uh, looking to deploy into more of a, a fiber optic network, which is going to really bring a, a couple challenges. So the first is um, a lot of people think of fiber and the big challenges around that with connecting the subscribers and sort of what we call the last mile. But I think the article did a really good job of highlighting the middle mile challenge that just because you have fiber laid in the town of Silverton itself doesn't mean that all those homes and businesses have a connection to the backbone and getting backbone connection to that particular community is going to be extremely challenging. And when you're looking at connecting the at the far end of the network, you've got to make sure that all the intermediate connections are also sustainable and uh, and supporting that overall connection experience for the, the businesses and the, and the consumers in there. So um, I thought it did a great job of kind of just in a microcosm listing out all the potential issues that you might have in terms of a remote area. You've got to get workers down there to deploy the network. You've got to get the crews there. You've got to make sure the material is available, as you mentioned. Um, and well-coordinated, and then ultimately the backbone connection. I'm glad you brought up that middle mile uh, service challenge because that is exactly what stood out to me as well. You know, there's just this little quote that I think uh, summarizes the challenge well. In a, a quote, in a place like downtown Denver, you've got somebody taking your services every hundred feet, but between Pagosa Springs and Bayfield, rural Colorado towns 40 miles apart, it might be every couple of miles that you have a refresh or a touch point, right? Can you expand on this challenge, this sort of middle mile service challenge and why, why that sort of distance between a node taking your services uh, is so key to identify early and start to craft solutions for to make sure rural broadband is actually deployed effectively? Yeah, so the, the network topology uh, plays a big impact on the the cost structure of the the deployment, right? So if uh, your access to the the backbone is uh, is a distance away, then you can literally calculate the cost per mile to to connect, and it's only going to the, the cost per mile is dependent on a lot of things. If you've got utility poles that you can connect to, then maybe that's a little lower. But if you're in mountain communities and you're trying to bury the, the cable underground, that's going to be a significant uh, undertaking and a, and a pretty pretty major project. And that's going to impact the overall cost structure of the, the program and the, and the cost profile. So um, these middle mile connections, I think, are the kind of... Um, the, the least understood and the maybe the least um, sort of... Um, well-managed part of the overall network. So everyone understands who the big backbone providers are, massive investments in there, very well-supported infrastructure. Uh, connecting homes in urban areas is uh, a lot of focus for a lot of our carrier customers. Uh, but that connectivity between the two really starts to shine in these rural communities, and uh, it's a big challenge. Yeah, and then, you know, uh, referring to another challenge here, the article mentions that mixes in to the geographical challenge is affordability, right? Um, the article makes a point that, quote, affordability uh, is as much of a problem in rural areas as it is in urban areas. Could you expand on that a little bit? What is really being said here? And, uh, you know, if you had to provide a little context, what truly makes uh, service affordability difficult in a rural area compared to an urban area? Is it for the same reasons 
or different factors at play here? No, the, the factors are a little bit different, right? So if you're building a commercial model and an investment model around um, lighting up a specific service area, there's two key metrics that you're going to be looking at. The first is the uh, cost per home passed and then the take rate. And when you've got a dense population, then the cost per home pass is going to be uh, quite a bit lower than in a rural area. Um, you could argue maybe the take rate might be higher in a rural area because there's less competition for that uh, particular subscriber. But ultimately, those two equations drive the, the commercial model. Now, in a rural, in a in an urban environment, there's a, a ton of private capital that is um, attracted to that market because the returns are are pretty uh, are pretty good right now, relative to other investments. The um, in the rural area, the returns can be a lot more challenging, and that's where things like the bead funding and the uh, Infrastructure Jobs Act come in to uh, to provide an incentive and a kind of um, a bridge, so to speak, between what uh, what private capital can provide and uh, and making the the overall project economically viable. Now, there are some challenges with that, though, because a lot of the funding and grant programs focus on the initial deployment, and certainly that's a significant cost. But there are ongoing operating costs to maintaining the network, and and when carriers are looking at the the economic models, they're looking at these over a long period of time because the investments have a, a huge upfront capital cost and a, a long term payback. But the operational costs certainly need to be considered, and we hear from some of our customers that sometimes the math just doesn't pencil out yet, and uh, and that's still a challenge for some of these rural communities. I think. Uh, they, they've maybe solved the initial deployment cost and economic problem, but the ongoing operating costs are um, are still a little bit uncertain. Mm. So let's hone in then uh, on, we're both going to hone in and pull out a little bit and talk about just the larger challenges that await rural telcos in deploying these funds <clears throat> and actually getting to work on, um, again, implementing renewed uh, broadband infrastructure. So we've kind of hit on some of them, right? There's obviously geographical challenges. There's obviously uh, resource challenges. But if you had to get a little bit more specific on, you know, especially in sort of the way that rural telcos are going to have to coordinate between other private entities, public entities, what does that, you know, backpack full of responsibilities now really feel like for rural telcos? Yeah, I think there's... I'll sort of put these into two different buckets. The first is just the uh, sort of administrative challenge of the grant application process and managing and tracking all the funds that have to be traced all the way down. So as with any sort of uh, um, funding, there's strings attached, right? And certainly with uh, the bead funding, there's a lot of documentation required. There is um, some reporting that needs to be done. Um, and managing and making sure you're on top of all that will make will really make sure you're successful. We've had other customers tap into other kind of uh, government initiatives, and really sometimes they've struggled to make sure that they have the documentation in uh, in a single location and uh, and managing all the key milestones that are are important to that. So, if I'd sort of give one piece of advice for anyone who's uh, applying for some funding. Um, make sure that you've got your your data and your documentation organized and you're on top of all the key milestones and dates that you're um, you're signing up for. The second one is maybe more on the operational side is uh, making sure that you've got 
um, an attractive plan to to get make sure the contractors can can get access to the work, right? Because ultimately the contractors are going to be the ones placing the cable, um, installing the equipment, and uh, and lighting up the subscribers and getting the network um, activated. <clears throat> and I feel like that is a little bit maybe well not well understood in terms of the impact that all this public money is going to have in the market. So it's one thing to have the money; it's another to have a contractor signed and on a schedule. <clears throat> And are you able, are you going to be able to attract that, <clears throat> excuse me, are you going to be able to attract that contractor? Because there's a lot of competing business for the contractors now. And there may be um, business that's maybe easier for them to, uh, to take down, um, easier to get paid on. And, uh, and they're going to, they're going to go to where the path of least resistance is. So um, I think that that is maybe a little bit underestimated in, in terms of a forecast for 2024 is there's all this money available. But are there the crews and the contractors ready and uh, and available to actually perform that work? Let's pull at each of those a little bit because I think those are really good buckets. Uh, you know, sort of the the core ones that shape the again the long game here for rural telcos. So let's start with the administrative side of this uh, on not only the grant application process but just managing the timeline. Right? You mentioned this at the start of the podcast, but. When we're talking about deploying this infrastructure, this is going to start to rear its head in the next few months and quarters, and then it's likely going to extend over the course of several quarters, maybe years. And so we're not just talking about a few months of deployment and then we're done, we solved the issue. And I mean, obviously there's the long-term service and maintenance of all of that, but there's also just this balance of infrastructure deployment, you know, any issues that are naturally going to arise with that, solving those, and then maintaining confident general service that they also have to keep up with, with their existing network and existing infrastructure. Talk to us a little bit about some of the nuanced challenges that you foresee with that balancing act. And if you have any suggestions or actionable strategies for, I don't know, a a mental framework or a, a grounded sort of like here's how you should approach that balance. I'd love to hear it. And I think our audience would too. You're dead on that this is going to be a a long-term investment cycle. So we can think of this as really a generational investment cycle uh, for that's going to have impacts and already has had impacts for, um, for decades, really. I mean, fiber at its core is a, a very uh, long duration infrastructure investment. So one nice thing about fiber is that it's almost like it's infinitely upgradable. Just by uh, swapping the electronics as the technology approves, you'll be able to improve service as well. So when you lay a fiber optic cable, you can be confident that it's got a 50-year lifespan and a, probably a 50-year um, uh, um, investment cycle attached to it. So as far as I know, no one's going to improve on the speed of light anytime soon. So these fiber optic cables have um, certainly uh, a lot of upside uh, to them. And there's a, a lot of innovation going on right now in the electronic side of things to get more capacity and more bandwidth out of that single, um, those single strands of fiber. Now, so yes, this is not something that's just going to be uh, one and done in 2024. The, the nature of the, the bead funding is it is quite decentralized. So the, the federal government issued all the funds to the states based on their um, programs that they submitted. And now it's up to the states to distribute those out um, based on the applications that the individual carriers are presenting to them. And of course, all that, uh, all that takes time. I think in general, it was a good, good idea to decentralize it. It puts the, the money at the most local level, which is always 
typically a, a better approach in terms of maximizing the return and, and making sure that it's uh, um, the nuances of different regions are, are well understood. Clearly, like we talked about this location in Silverton, that's a, a different rural challenge than maybe someone in Iowa or someone in um, in Maine or, or even someone in uh, in remote parts of California, right? So those nuances can be well addressed by the, the local state officials and the, the carriers that are ultimately applying for the application grants. Um, I think I, I would probably just reiterate in terms of the nuts and bolts, right, that you've you've got to make sure that you've got a process to manage this funding and make sure that you've got a system in place to track the execution of your network deployment against those funds. So if you if you have loose connections in there, then you're likely to miss something. And if you miss something, then you're likely to have um, other challenges that uh, that we maybe don't want to even talk about here in terms of getting uh, getting the, the funds deployed and, and getting people paid. So I think that would be the, the front end side of things. You also mentioned a little bit on the operational side and operating network is not free. And, uh, and certainly there are challenges in a remote area. And uh, when we hear about our customers sort of, again, doing the math and trying to figure out what the, the business case is, um, even right now with all this money flowing in, it, it's still a challenge. I mean, interest rates have rise and that's raised uh, the cost of uh, private capital and uh, it's creating um, some rethinking around prioritization of different uh, projects. And I think uh, the, the, the rural side of things is likely to be the most impacted by that. Okay, now to pull at the second bucket that you referenced earlier, this is the larger sort of workforce management side of things, contractor collaborations. Um, you know, I, I want to, I guess, ask more specifically about the relationship maintenance and development there, right? I imagine a lot of these rural telcos already have strong relationships, hopefully, with contractors that they work with to deploy infrastructure, service their infrastructure, et cetera. But when we're, we're talking about, you know, a long game of deploying new infrastructure, solving issues, um, then servicing it, you know, further down years down the line. Uh, is this going to be mostly a challenge of maintaining and expanding existing relationships with contractors or a rural telco is going to have to put boots on the ground and uh, essentially try to develop new fresh contractor relationships specifically for deploying and managing these funds and, you know, in practice, essentially. Um, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's probably mm -hmm. both. Um, existing contractor relationships will be probably the first lever that gets pulled. Um, but just because you've got a relationship with a contractor doesn't mean that contractor has crews and labor immediately available on the timeframes that you're looking right. for. I mean, they're a, a private business that's looking for the, the best return on, on, uh, on, their, on their labor pool, on their crews. And they're going to deploy those to where the the projects are the most shovel ready, and when where they can get um, uh, get the most efficient sort of allocation of their their crews. Now, in an urban environment, moving crews around from one area to another is not a big. I mean, it's a challenge, and it's a um, it's not great when it happens, but it's certainly something that's manageable and feasible. But if you've got a crew up in the mountains and there's a, a delay or something that happens then redeploying them is probably not as feasible. So just making sure that you can manage your resource allocation if you're a contractor is gonna be a challenge in some of these remote areas. And that just moves everything, moves the importance rather of pre-construction activities up to the forefront. 
So making sure that your engineering is solid, making sure that all your permits are, are in place, making sure that um, all the pre-construction activities are, are in place because the, uh, the, the challenge of dealing with rework and with sort of field conditions are just magnified when you're in a, a rural environment. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think there's gonna be a, a big push in making sure those pre-construction activities and the engineering to construction handoffs are a lot smoother. And we've seen that already um, in a lot of our customer base. So the typically the, the, the handoff between, as I said, engineering and construction and that design coordination is, um, is, is not always the smoothest, let's put it that way. So we, uh, we actually did a, a major innovation project last year at SiteTracker and we, uh, we actually launched a new product called GIS Link. So a lot of uh, fiber design is moving to GIS and, uh, and GIS handoffs are becoming much more common in the industry. So our GIS Link product is a, a way to connect that engineering and construction teams uh, let the engineering team produce their design and then track work for the construction teams against it. And that's proven very popular. And I think more, more innovation and more, um, more investment in the collaboration tools is, is coming in the industry. And um, it's really going to improve the, the overall kind of workflow from, uh, from start to finish. You teed me up perfectly there because that was really the next thread I wanted to pull at is... Uh, you know, obviously there are the challenges that come with coordination across parties, um, with the just literal deployment of this infrastructure and the crew management, the, you know, supply chain uh, coordination that comes with all that. But like we're seeing in other industries, like we're seeing in retail with RFID, for example, or just general sort of logistics oversight uh, softwares and, um, tools and solutions, uh, this sort of focus on the supply chain over the last three years has been to the benefit of the supply chain in that certain things that were maybe taken for granted are now getting focused tools and uh, solutions to make that coordination easier and that oversight and collaboration easier. So could you give us some other touch points and feel free to... Um, you know, offer more examples of what SideTracker is working on, uh, on some of the technological breakthroughs, solutions development, et cetera, that are helping make that coordination easier or that you foresee coming in the next few years that will assist rural telcos, uh, help manage these projects and have constant communication and collaboration with needed parties. Yeah, certainly. So at SiteTracker, um, we, in, we put all this in sort of a, a digital transformation bucket and looking to digitize the, uh, all the touch points and all the collaboration points from, from planning right through to field construction. Um, it's sort of a, a hidden secret that a lot of construction projects are run off of email and shared Excel spreadsheets. And those types of communications are brittle, they're expensive to maintain, and, uh, and they're hard to manage. So with SiteTracker, we take uh, a lot of pride actually in our ability to kind of digitize the communication, get, uh, get all the parties out of these disconnected communication channels, like I said, email and, and, uh, and disconnected spreadsheets and, uh, and get them into a, a tool that allows them to um, really get good visibility um, in terms of what's happening on the ground and, uh, and, deal, and taking that information and adjusting their plans accordingly. 
Um, so yeah, there's a, a ton of innovation happening in, in the whole digitization space. I mentioned GIS, it's uh, becoming much more prevalent in the industry. Um, a lot of more standardization happening there as well in terms of creating a common way of working. In the past, again, uh, even if you wanted to do a GIS-based workflow, the data sets were often um, not well-suited to the, for the construction teams, certainly not well-suited for the, the field uh, supervisors and, um, and foremen to, to work on it. So they resorted to paper because uh, that's sort of the least common denominator. And it's not uncommon today to see foremen walking around with um, 60, 70, 80 sheets of, uh, of paper in a construction handbook um, and, and marking things up with pen and paper. And so we at SiteTracker are really working hard to kind of digitize that entire workflow from start to finish. And in a rural environment, you might not have inspectors that are instantly available as an example. Um, so you might want to do a remote inspection. You might want to make sure that you are using um, automation to do quality checks. So those types of tools are coming to the marketplace and, um, and, and we're seeing that uh, the demand for those types of technologies certainly create, uh, has more awareness now than it has in the past as people start to focus on efficiencies and, uh, and ultimately timeliness to, to complete projects. And uh, in Site Tracker's case specifically, or if you want to talk maybe just more generally, um, but would love some anecdotes if you have them, uh, is Site Tracker working with or are you seeing kind of solutions providers in the space actively collaborate with other solutions providers to try to build a little bit of, you know, even if there's like obviously healthy competition in the space, some alignment on um, the core needs that have to be served so that larger rural, um, you know, infrastructure development for telecommunications and broadband can actually be achieved. Um, cause I'll just, I'll pause and give a little context on that. You know, a lot of the calls that we've seen in the larger ecosystem and context of bead funding is that there really does need to be active cross industry and inter-industry collaboration from all parties and, uh, identifying areas of risk and challenges and creating buy-in, um, you know, including from like, for example, contractors, right? So contractors aren't just waiting for the right contract that are, you know, shovel ready for them to hit, but there's some amount of buy-in that they would like more, you know, shovel ready contracts. They would like, you know, this to be handled well by the telcos so that they can execute on the project, not only for their own interests, but the industry's interests. Like that is a, a almost a, a cultural mission for the industry, right? So <laughs> I'm curious if you're seeing that play out in practice amongst these sort of um, digital layer solutions providers that are working to build collaboration across the industry? Are they also collaborating? Or I guess what kind of collaboration are you taking on to improve the quality of what you're um, putting out onto the market? I will say that, first of all, competition is really fierce in the marketplace. So the, um, the plans and deployment activities of the carriers are closely held secrets and they use that competitive edge to make sure they are entering markets that are the most profitable for them. And that's not gonna change. So uh, I think that's fair. However, you are absolutely correct that there are some aspects of the process that impact everyone equally and there is starting to be some, co um, some coordinated efforts to improve them. And I can think of a couple. The first is the permitting process. So permits are a huge headache for everyone that has to deploy infrastructure in a specific area. And right now the permitting workflows and permitting um, processes are very inefficient. 
they are hard to predict, and they are very cumbersome. And that impacts everyone in the industry. And it just slows things down. It's just an area of friction that is um, uh, sort of destroying value in the marketplace. Now, we're not saying get rid of permits, nobody's saying that, but the ability to streamline the permitting process, understanding that we are in a generational investment cycle and that the old ways of doing permits may have served the needs in the past, but they might not serve the needs of your community going forward. And you may wanna think about doing things a little differently. So for example, I had one story from, a, 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 I think it was a contractor customer of ours that was talking about a project they worked on where every single street in the, um, in the town had to be permitted separately. And that was just the rules of the town. And you can imagine that that is going to add a lot of friction to that to construction process and a lot of potential delays and a lot of um, potential costs. So that is just one example where um, this whole permitting is, uh, is become a challenge. The good news on that front is that the uh, people are well aware of this and there are coordinated efforts to try and streamline this at a, at a higher level. And so um, at, uh, at one of the big trade show events this year, there, uh, they had someone from the federal government come in and they've uh, essentially, I'll, I'll use my words, not his, but a task force to, to kind of streamline the permitting process. And new playbooks are being issued to, uh, to provide guidance to communities on how they can streamline this process and make it easier for these big generational investments to, uh, to take place without uh, the unneeded friction, but still providing them the control that they need to uh, make sure their residents are aware of what's going on and, and that ultimately um, the, the projects are, are well controlled. One other example is dealing with locates. So locates are um, an activity where you've got to mark out where the existing infrastructure is in place. These could be um, utilities or um, sewers and, and water, water mains and so forth. And um, when you're doing underground fiber construction, understanding where the existing utilities are placed is super important for the construction crews. And it's not uncommon now to find um, very poor quality locates and or dealing with locates that are um, are inaccurate and incomplete. <clears throat> and every time that you run into an issue where there's a gas main and the last thing any con uh, fiber construction crew wants to do is uh, drill and hit a gas main. So these things are safety issues, but they also add a lot of delays when they're not done properly. And there's a lot of um, a lot of challenges there and a lot of frustration. I think I talked to one, uh, I was actually out in the field uh, last summer and talked to a crew supervisor and said, what's the impact of poor locates? Because we had actually had a, an issue when I was on, on site with them. And he said, I could probably operate 40% more quickly if locates were perfect. <laughs> and that's not just even a cost, that's just a speed to market, right? And it's a, it's a big challenge. I feel like we could have a whole episode just pulling at that thread of <laughs> the nuances of private to private, public private collaboration, you know, competitor competitor collaboration, and and some of these nuances of uh, like the the permitting process is a perfect one here, right? That you know each little city and locality and and uh, region is going to be chock full of strange, inefficient, dated policies that make the deployment of this infrastructure at scale hard to actually do and 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 achieve um but for the sake of time yeah, i could probably even 
I could probably even layered in pull attachments as yeah. another third example if you wanted. So um, lots of good future content for you. Yeah, Daniel, literally. To kind of dig into no, and, you, uh, and double click. You've got on. my wheels turning. I'm definitely going to want to bring you back for more on this. Um, but yeah, for the sake of time, let's just pivot here to start to close things out. This has been so insightful. Thank you so much for your perspective so far, Brant. Um, let's talk. Let, let's leave on an area of optimism, I suppose. Um Obviously, this is not like the first time that broadband is reaching rural communities and underserved communities. Part of the issue here is that, you know, there is infrastructure, but it's just not nearly enough for a lot of communities. And so I'm curious if you can share any stories and maybe specific ones that Site Tracker has worked on, that you've worked on elsewhere, or that you think just capture the spirit of why this is such an important project of specifically, um, seeing rural broadband infrastructure deployed into a new community or refreshed in an existing rural community and some of the impacts that this has on the community, right? The larger ripple effects, the ecosystem that comes from, you know, not only like economic development, but, but also some of the consequences of the needed collaboration that we were just talking about, right? Of a project bringing multiple parties together to sort of uh, solve such a weighty challenge together and then the consequence is that now they operate more efficiently together, right? So just kind of if you have any anecdotal stories to tell like that capture when, you know, when this is done right, what does it look like essentially, uh, I think would be great for our audience. I love the idea of leaving on a positive note because uh, this is a, a major positive development for a lot of the communities that have struggled in the past. And I think the sort of economic and social benefits of connectivity are, are fairly well understood, but in my personal opinion, they are um, amplified even more so now than maybe we had thought about five years ago. So there's a lot more remote work happening. There's a lot more remote learning happening. And all those opportunities now are being uh, made available to locations that maybe in the past struggled with them. So if you're a, um, a smart kid in, uh, in a rural community and you want to take a, a Harvard course now or an MIT course, that's available to you now. Five years ago, that wasn't the case. So we're, I think a lot of people are looking at what the use cases are for and what the, the enablement of uh, in infrastructure investment are. I think the impacts on society in terms of decentralizing um, and, and creating more opportunities where you don't have to leave your rural community to, to get the same economic and social advantages that maybe you had in the past. And I think that is well is, is not well understood what the long term benefits of that might be. And um, I'm very optimistic. Um, I've lived in rural communities in, in the past. I grew up in one. Um, and when I was growing up, it was OK, I need to get out of this town and go to the big city to make it big and, and sort of um, have my opportunities. And that is not the case now. You can certainly have almost the same opportunities regardless of the location where you live. And I think these so, so, sort of impacts on society for that are going to be very dramatic and, um, and, a, and a major positive for sort of tapping into the potential of everyone in that, uh, no matter where they live and, uh, and, and sort of where they're, um, uh, where they're located. So I'm super optimistic on the, the, the long-term impact that this generational investment is going to have. Yeah. And I, I think you hit on something really important there that, you know, we just spent the whole podcast talking about nitty gritty nuances of you know, one party's challenges of coordinating with another, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, getting lost in that sauce, uh, 
is something to caution folks on because like obviously that's all necessary like we need to solve these minute challenges and nuanced challenges for every rural community but we can't lose sight of the fact that these are they're not just being taken on to achieve a project and you know secure my needed slice of the pie and move on but it is a, a bigger vision here for a revitalization and a, an empowerment of rural communities because like any other utility today, comms utilities are absolutely essential. You know, Wi-Fi, strength, uh, you know, um, reliable fiber, um, reliable 5G. I mean, all these things are increasingly becoming and in many cases already are needed utilities for day-to-day -day operations of, you know, casual lifestyle. But more importantly, getting a job done. Uh, you know, being a productive member of your community, small or large. And so I think it can be easy to forget some of that, you know, kind of big picture stuff, a little more like bleeding heart stuff. But um, while, you know, folks might say that's, you know, yeah, it's fun to think about, but we've got to think about the nitty gritty. Yes, I agree. But it's an inspirational moment for the industry and not losing sight of that, I think, can help motivate a lot of this needed collaboration and the nuanced nitty gritty we talked about um, that's obviously needed. But, yeah, I always like pontificating on the the big picture stuff. You know? No, I think it's uh, a great way to end and think about some previous generational investment cycles that uh, were done in the U.S. when uh, reliable power was brought to a lot of rural communities or when the interstates were developed. To me, this is on that scale. And this is likely to have um, both the obvious impacts that we all think and can enumerate on a, on a call like this, but also a lot of impacts that we haven't even thought of yet. And when I'm looking forward sort of 10 or 15 years from now and envisioning a world where everyone in, uh, regardless of where you live, has access to reliable high-speed broadband internet access, it's kind of hard to imagine what uh, what the impact is on uh, the next generation of, um, of sort of um, uh, kids that are growing up in that environment and what they'll think is possible. So I'm, I'm super optimistic. Let's go ahead and leave on that note because I think that's a perfect one to wrap things up. Brant Carter, thank you so much for your time, your perspectives and analysis today. It's really been a, a treat getting to hear from you uh, and pull from your experience in you know rural communities. Uh, and obviously working on major, major projects in telco development to understand some of the challenges that lie ahead in this, you know, uh, cr cross entity, cross industry collaboration, um, but also specifically for rural telcos that have, you know, a major weight to carry here. Um, but again, you know, have the opportunity to deliver a, a utility, a, a service, a foundational part of their, you know, community's day-to-day -day function that, um, you know, is maybe still even being understated. So again, folks, we've been chatting with Brant Carter, Director of Industry Products at Site Tracker. Uh, Brant, thank you again. And if folks want to learn a little bit more about you, about Site Tracker, maybe get in touch, where should we point them? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me and my pleasure to, to speak to you today. For people that want to learn more about Site Tracker, the best spot is to go to our website, sitetracker.com, and you can learn a lot more about um, what we're doing and how we're trying to accelerate the growth of broadband infrastructure, uh, not only in the U.S., but uh, around the world. Lovely. All right, Brant, thank you again. And we'll definitely chat again soon. I'm going to recommend to my teams that we get you back on because 
I wasn't kidding when I said we had some other threads to pull at. So hopefully more to come. Thank you. And thank you everyone for tuning in to today's episode of Wavelengths, an Amphenol Broadband Solutions podcast. If you like what you heard and saw today and you want previous conversations or you want to make sure you don't miss out on future key discussion and touch points on bead funding or any other major developments to the broadband and telecom industries, make sure you head to our website, amphenolbroadband.com. Again, amphenolbroadband.com. And make sure that you're subscribing to Wavelengths on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. We'll catch you on the next episode of Wavelengths. Wavelengths.